Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm Jade Scott. This is Growth RX, and today we're joined with the incredible Mick Risk. Mick, how are you going? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for joining us. You've got to, I've got to go through this big long CV of yours to introduce you to people. But not only are you a physiotherapist, you're a practice owner, iMovie Physiotherapy. Then you extend that out to online education courses, live education courses, mentoring, new grads, practitioners, everyone, I move you education. And you're also a clinic mentor or a business mentor for Clinic Mastery. Mm. Not missed? No, that's good. No? Okay. Also, look, I like to refer to you as the Gary V of Allied Health because you drop a lot of F-bombs and truth bombs. Yeah, I do, don't I? Yeah. I get emotive. Everybody needs that expressive personality every now and again. And look, it makes you engaging. I know that I'm certainly engaged. And I think the other thing is, that which we're going to hear a lot about today in our chat, you just own it. And I think obviously you can do that with confidence as you go through as a practitioner. But, you know, am I wrong to think that you were confident all the time? I mean, I'm going to ask you a few questions, but has your confidence built? in regards to the camera and your message? Oh, yes. I, I actually, I went to YouTube and I did reverse chronological order and found the very first video I posted in 2012 for iMove Physio. And it's like the worst video you've ever seen. Like the worst speech, knowing like no hands, I was like scared. And that's probably the first learning, right? Is like, you just, you just got to keep doing it. But then you get better. And then this year, surprise, like this year, I would say has been my hardest year on socials. Like I've, there's been some stuff that's really challenged me. There's been like posts I've said, shared into other groups. And like a lot of people say, I can't believe you said that people getting angry at me for swearing. And then like this year, my confidence was rocked online a lot. So I guess you kind of go up and down, right? Like a, like a practitioner does. Yeah. Well, look, I think I just admire you for being in the arena. There's a lot of people that will prod and poke, but they're also lurking behind the scenes and they're not having, you know, you're, you're a voice, you're not an echo. And regardless of what people believe or say, there are so many people that stand with you. And I think also the other thing is if they don't stand with you, then you're encouraging open conversation, discussion, and I guess a, a bit of debate, which is great these days in allied health. So look, I, I commend you because I know how nervous I get every Thursday when I do that. A lot of people say that I look natural. I'm certainly not. I'd rather be rocking under the table. Um, but before we kind of kick off with some more conversation, I'm just going to ask you a few questions so that we can get to know you a little yeah. bit more. So the first one would be maybe in one or I'll give you two words. How would your friends describe you? Oh, I don't know. I get after it, always going, something like that. Yeah. I think they asked me to slow down. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I can, I can kind of see that. I'm good. Yeah. I, you know, we don't often as, as leaders and when you put your, sat, your face out there, you're perceived a certain way. So I just think it's nice sometimes that obviously we perceive you like that. So your friends have clearly got it right though. Mm, mm. Um, okay. The second one, what's your biggest pet peeve? Oh, these are, these are so deep. I think probably what we're talking about today, uh, like a, a cynicism or a lack of trust or a, I guess it all kind of falls under that, that fixed mindset we talk about. Yeah. Um, I, I'm really interested into why people are cynics or have a lot of mistrust. Um, and, and because I'm a physio, I'm so super interested in why it happens in our health professionals. Yeah. And sometimes it's not something you can control, right? Like sometimes it's something that happened in your childhood. Who knows? Yeah. Well, we'll deep dive into lots more of that. Okay. I'll give you an easy, easy, soft question. Mm. I know you're a gamer. I love mm. you. I know you love video games. A lot of people don't know that about you. What's your favorite game you're playing at the moment? At the moment, um, I'm playing the remake of a game that I grew up on, and that is called Final Fantasy VII. Um, I used to come straight home from high school, lock myself in my room, eat two roll-ups and play Final Fantasy VII until 7pm. I just jumped out of the live. Oh, I'm that's gonna okay. Go, I'm going to go back live on Facebook. The internet connection must have just dropped out. Hang on. 
Oh, I can see recording. Yeah, yeah. I'm still recording, but um, it's dropped. It's dropped out of the group. Do you want me to look too? That's all right. I'll just jump back in there. Okay, we'll go live again. Live again. Okay. Sorry, everyone. We're back. A little few tech issues. I just want to make sure that we're we're back in the group again. Yep, we're back for a second time. Sorry about that. The joys of going live. Okay, Nick, I'm back with you. Sorry, we we're talking about your live streaming, gaming. Yeah. Fantasy, fantasy. That's it. Yeah, Final Fantasy VII. If you played PlayStation and you were born in the 80s, you will, you'll know what that is. Um, so I'm playing the remake of that at the moment. Okay. Yeah. And I need to know where you stand on Crocs, the footwear. I, I actually think you're the first person that, like, I saw it because of you. I didn't know what it was. I'm intrigued. <laughs> okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a live one day into the group about, I've, I've followed Crocs for two decades, and there's actually a science behind it when it comes okay. to social proof and recognition. It started in Fort Lauderdale back in 1997, but I'm not gonna, that's not what today's about. I'll, I'll come back at you with that. Um, and in true Growth RX style, we like to showcase the amazing work that leaders are doing in the industry. I would love to know what leadership means to you. I think it's putting, just putting others first, right? In, in the true sense of it, um, in time, time and energy, not just money. So I'd just say putting others first. Yeah. And it's certainly a nice way to look at it. Hmm. Okay. Now, we, we chat a lot offline. We have lots of our own mini conversations, which I love. If people could be offline, we want for some of our conversations. So we're going to bring one of them live today. And when I ask you the topic, obviously your go-to is private practice. But more than that, it's private practice and achieving the win-win-win. Hmm. Because as you've mentioned quite a few times, as I've heard you say, people seem quite cynical about not only being able to love what they do in practice and provide high value care and evidence-based medicine and look after our patients purpose meaning why all the rest of it but some per some people's purpose and meaning is actually business and having a really profitable successful business and i guess more and more often there's a bit of tall poppy there's a bit of can you actually have both? So I think that's probably what we're going to explore today. How, where do you stand with mm. most of that? I mean, it's, it's certainly possible. I think I was, I, I feel like it's possible because I feel like we're on our way to doing it and I've seen it work really well. I've seen team members have flexibility, earn good pay, be leaders, have some also have a satellite clinic um, and the business still be great. But when I, a few posts this year, when I was speaking to questioning my confidence, there was definitely a, a, ho a host of people who just like, what are you talking about? It's horrible out there. Like, I don't think you see what we see. And, and so that probably just speaks to the range of private practices, right? Yeah. And there's two different mm -hmm. mindsets here. Unfortunately in life and even in everything we're seeing with COVID, job keeper or not you've got employers and you've got employees but yeah. also in allied health we've got contractors we've got rental facilities there are so many ways that people can be remunerated but yeah. we're still guided by the same common ground which is we're a fee-for-service industry yeah. if we don't treat patients we don't get paid so there is that ethical concept there that if you rebook too often then you're out for a money grab. If your bosses or if you've got a business owner who tells you to rebook, there's some kind of money grab. Or if you're not booking enough, you're not providing such high value care. Mm. There, you know, there is a difference between under-servicing and over-servicing and that comes down to education, right? And then that ties back into money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the, that's the hard thing about what we do. The hard, the hard thing is... We all need stability and security, whether that's you as a team member or the business owner. But then we do this thing that's supposed to be evidence-based and seemingly that competes. It's almost like a left and right brain thing. It was like, well, we can't do this and do this. 
I think you can. I think the evidence points to it. And I'm like, I don't know, I'm pretty young. I've got some mentors that are in their 50s and 60s. And like, I trust them too. Like I trust the people that have been before me and, and they tell me that this is how they do it. And that, that's not saying, I'm not just being naive here, but across the whole spectrum of everyone I've seen and worked with, there is a balance. I mean, in physio, it's you know somewhere between six and 10 visits. And if you can do that, you sit well within evidence-based guidelines and you can actually earn good money for yourself and the business can actually earn money and you can do so in a way that has social impact or environmental impact. That stuff exists. But sometimes I feel like people don't think that that's possible. But yeah. it is. And look, before we extend on, I guess, what we can do better, both mm. as practitioners and business owners, I want to extend on that. You were talking about the six figures. You know that I love to drop evidence-based bombs. Mm. There is a study that was done back in 2005 where they assessed almost 20,000 patients in the UK. That was a physio-driven model and it was also assessing lumbar spine. It was called the stratified approach. Mm. And what they did is they found that the evidence-supported best outcomes, and I talk about this a lot in Good to Great in Private Practice, because you can't just tell people when to come back and you know we we have this best practice model but then there's also this stratified approach model and they say the best results come and this is the evidence supporting this from a patient who comes back six times mm. six times so yeah. if you're falling less than the six times and look obviously there's individual here this is not about trying to make a, a one-size-fits-all this is just a collaborative suggestion of what they found but i find that in all of my dealings and and mostly for me and i don't know about you but it's mainly osteopathic graduates i've probably dealt with you know over the last 12 years they've got this rule of threes mm. and to me there's absolutely no evidence to support best outcomes for three treatments but what it is, it's a comfort zone. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I think it's really easy for a new grad or a practitioner to have an initial consult and then follow up a week later and then maybe touch base after that. So three consultations is really easy for anyone. It's stepping outside of that three and how you make somebody a long-term patient, trust, relationship. What, what do you, I mean, you've got a huge amount of experience with new grads, where do they sit and where does that barrier for the ongoing relationship in a patient and that initial, how do people bridge that gap? Yeah, I think every new grad we've had come through iMove Physio and all the new grads I've seen in Clinic Mastery, which is over a few hundred businesses, the average is two to three visits. And what's, what's really clear is that if you ask the new grad, they're saying, no, I probably wasn't finished with that journey or no, I didn't get them to where I would have liked or I didn't get them to end stage strengthening, which we know prevents injury. So I think there's a clear gap in the skills and the tools and the communication to go from that two to three up towards that six to 10. And it's a lack of value on what we do. Sometimes it's a lack of knowledge, like, uh, oh yeah, they're just, they're just going to do their exercises and I'll progress it themselves at home, which never happens. And it's not evidence-based because most studies are between six and 12 weeks and most good physios, I'll speak to physios and EPs, most, most good health professionals want to go into the prevention space and add quality of life. And if it takes four to six to eight weeks at a minimum to get muscle tendon changes, how are you doing that in two or three visits? And then let's flip that on chronic patients. If chronic patients, we're talking about change talk and behavior change, how are you doing behavior change in two or three visits? Like, I don't think the best in the world, like let's talk Laura Mosley and Greg Lehman and all, you know, some of these pain science mentors. Even when you're great, when you're great at both physiology, neuroscience and communication, I still think it would be bloody hard to change someone's beliefs and behaviors in two or three visits. So, and you're definitely not there as a new grad, uh, but that's okay. I just, I think some are unaccepting of that. It, many, many new grads, the bulk majority are like, yes, I need help with this. They're clearly discharging early or they're clearly canceling early. Let's work on it. 
Um, but there is a, a small percentage of people, I guess, that feel two or three visits is enough. Yeah. And I, it, look, for me, and people might argue, I think it kind of comes down to a few things. A lack of confidence in your prognosis and your ability to treatment plan and provide a, an actual program. Education in the beginning and actually outlining, rather than say, come back next week, come back next week, come back next week, putting a plan in place from that initial consult. And the other one is, I would say, is that fear of, of money. You know, they worry about how much, it's almost like they're, they're too worried to have patients keep coming back because as a student in the student clinic, it's pretty cheap. But when you're taking 85 plus dollars a consult, yeah. you know, do you think people are worried too much about that? And again, it comes back to money, that financial exchange. Yeah, yeah. You might be better at this than me, but there is there is a term for that, like that you're seeing you're seeing others in the same situation that you're in. And if you're a health professional in your first three years, you're probably on less than 70k, let's call it. And so a hundred dollars twice in the first week seems like a hell of a lot of money. Uh, but that is that's just not the case. People have a problem, they want a solution and I guarantee we see this because we follow up with our people that have discharged. They're going and spending the $200 somewhere else. Um, someone who is giving them the end stage solution. And I just want to make the distinction here. You can still be patient centered. Patient centered is asking really good questions. Like what are your outcomes? Where else does this show up? Where is this impacting you? What would you love to do? What, what have you been told? What are your, behaviors and beliefs and thoughts about this condition that will guide how much you see them and if you do that really well you're still i don't think going to land anywhere between two and three visits on average there'll be some people who only need one or two visits we're not saying that but it's an average which also means you have to take into account that acl patient you might see 30 times you got work cover patients you see eight times you got epcs you see five times so I think if your average is two or three, it's probably speaking for something else. Yeah. And I think it all comes down to intent. If you are intending on just churning through and making money, your patients are going to see right through that. You're not going to provide the rest of the quality care in the consultation. Hmm. But also, this is the great thing about this research article, is that people that were seen less than six times didn't get the right outcome. They took more time off work. They invested more into childcare because they needed other people to help with caring and caregiving and they focused more on reactive health. So while something might have taken, you know, six consultations, other people had three acute flare-ups where they needed three treatments each time over a 12-month period. That was 12 treatments of reactive care. So mm -hmm. this is where my next question to you is, we are, we are headed into proactive care in healthcare. And the term maintenance for such a long time has been such a dirty word because it's mm. been tied to maintenance treatment, come back every month for the rest of your life or you're going to end in a wheelchair. That sort of mm. stuff that I was hearing two decades ago. How do we change this mindset? Is it an education thing? Does this start at a university level? Does it start at, in courses and post-grad stuff? Or does it start with mirroring? But if people aren't listening to their more experienced practice principles or practice owners where is this where are we breaking down i think it's like bullshit judgment from others like it's exactly what you, what others think about us if we use the word maintenance i don't i don't think i don't think i ever had many patients that were maintenance but if you go back to being patient-centered a lot of people actually want maintenance. So take the judgment of your peers off you and pages and groups that you think judge it harshly. There are a lot, we treat a lot of runners and CrossFitters. I'm not treating anymore for context, but we treat a lot of high level runners and a whole lot of high level CrossFitters. They don't need more strength. They don't need to be strengthened. They don't need real pain science. They have a healthy narrative. They understand their body's not a machine. They understand their body's adaptive. They just got a sore shoulder because they lift a lot and they're going to continue to lift because that's their choice and that's patient centered. And they just want someone with really good knowledge who they trust, who's going to ask good questions. And 
That might be the massage therapist. It might be the physio. It might be the osteo. It's patient-centered because the patient wants maintenance. I think if you're doing maintenance or you go in pre-framed, we need to get half of our patients on a maintenance plan. I definitely would like, on an, in an evidence standpoint, would disagree with that, but I'm open to others' thoughts. Um, that's where I stand. I think it's just judgment of our peers. If you just get rid of the judgment and ask patients what they want, there's a hell of a lot of people who actually want maintenance. And then it's no one's, it's no one can comment on that because you're doing what the patient wants. I couldn't agree more. One of the things I say to our team all the time is you've got to stop making assumptions for mm. other people. Just because it's what you need or you want or you dislike yeah. doesn't mean that you can pass that on to somebody else. It's the same. I use the same the example of getting my hair done. Now, I don't want to draw attention to the fact that I've got grey hair here. I used to be a blonde pre-COVID and now I'm a boring brunette. No, no offence to brunettes out there. I'm just talking about myself. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> don't attack me on that. Um, but I go to my hairdresser, right? And, she, and I used to, when I was blonde, she would say to me, okay, I'm going to rebook you now for eight weeks' time so that we don't get those roots. The last thing I would say to her is, oh, I don't actually really need to come back in eight weeks' time. You just want my money. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, yeah, well, it's a no-brainer. It's, it's kind of what happens. And, and she also says to me, I would normally wait 12 weeks personally but I know you like to come back in six to eight weeks because you don't want to get to that stage. Asking the question is so important. And often, obviously, we get paid to be able to deliver advice. So we don't just want to sit there. And I have banned the term at our clinic, see how you go. I don't think it's a matter of saying, you know, see how you go and you give me a call when you want to come back either. There needs to be some guidelines. But, you know, I think it has to be a bit of that exactly what you were talking about asking the questions and seeing where the patient sits. And that's the win-win-win. It's like you're being evidence-based. You should, you should, as a priority, as a health professional, prioritise learning good communication, learning the pain science, learning some of your manual skills. And if you look at the research and it's six to eight weeks and the patient is saying, yes, this is important to me, that takes all judgment off. You're practising... EBP. So come from that place rather than pre-frames. That's hard. My example is when I tore my hamstring last year, I understand the science. I'm a physio. That's like our bread and butter condition. And I know that my outcomes at three months would be exactly the same um, if I did or did not get manual therapy. I know that. I know the exercises to do. I know the progressions. I know the evidence. I still wanted manual therapy twice a week in the first two weeks for my torn hamstring for no other reason than it felt good. And for that hour or two, I felt like I could move better. That's just one example of a pre-frame. If I went and saw one of my team members, I got mad at my team for this. They just said, Mick, you know what to do. I'll see you in a week to two weeks. Now there might've been a bit of that boss mentality or a bit of he's a physio, he knows what he's doing. It's a classic example. They didn't practice EBP because they didn't ask me what I was feeling or what I wanted for my own hamstring. And they assumed. Um, so, so that's the win-win. It's not about going in with a template. Yeah. And I think, you know, someone's mentioning here that there's a bit of, you know, placebo and that sort of stuff going on. But some people actually really like it. I mean, what's your, I'd love your take on placebo. Is it unethical? Do we need it? Is it what drives businesses? Um, I think if you practice EBP, placebo will be part of that and you can, you can uh, exploit placebo in a bad way with a bad narrative or you can use placebo in a good way with a good narrative. There's two people that come to mind. Um, the, running, the running guy, the running clinic. If you look up the running clinic, I've forgotten his name, but he... He said, what effect do you think it has if you're a runner and you walk into a physio or an osteo and they're like, they're in a suit and tie and it's a small stuffy room versus you're a runner and you walk in and the health professional's got running memorabilia and he's in the latest running shoes. That's maximizing the placebo effect. Already I'm starting to think this guy's a runner, I'm a runner versus suit and tie person. Um, 
The second example is Lorimer Mosley. He's got a great video, which we, we have in our course, but it's, um, he says the placebo effect is a nonsense phrase because everything we thought was placebo, we're actually starting to figure out. We're starting to figure out that if you're more eloquent, you'll have a stronger placebo effect. Um, he made a joke about if you walk in with Mercedes keys versus a scooter, you're going to have a stronger placebo effect. So if you're better looking, you'll have a stronger placebo effect. So all these things that we call placebo are actually starting to figure out what they are. I kind of think placebo is just stuff the research hasn't unveiled yet. Absolutely. But it, it's also genetic. Social proof is genetic. Mm. It's wired in our genes. And yeah. placebo and genetic are, are not mutually exclusive. They, mm. you know, they, they kind of go hand in hand. So, so what can we, let's start with business owners. What can business owners be doing better when we're trying to get to that win-win-win? I think it really does come down to numbers and it, it kind of part of me, it kills me to say that. Uh, but I think the biggest tension point is a misconception from team members that owners are just rolling in it and that they're being taken advantage of and owners and leaders doing a terrible job explaining numbers. As an example, I would never speak about what we just spoke about in a review with a team member. What I like to focus on is what story the numbers are telling me and how I can improve you as a physio or a health professional based on what the numbers are showing me. Because the numbers are only part of it. But people don't want, health professionals particularly, don't want to know about numbers. It's not who we are. We want to help people. We're not that side of our brain dominant. And the second we hear numbers, because we're health professionals, we put up barriers. So you got to do a lot of work as a leader explaining that numbers just help me guide your mentoring as a health professional. Whether that's you need to improve your understanding of exercise prescription or you need to understand the physiology of osteoarthritis better or you need to get better at communication and, and pain and change talk. Um, I'm going through that now with one of your Growth RX leaders, with Jeff. Um, I'm upskilling myself yeah, on change talk. Yeah, yeah. So I think leaders need to do a better job explaining the story behind the numbers and also being more vulnerable with their numbers. The biggest turning point for iMove Physio, we actually showed the team what we were getting paid. And I don't, I'm not telling every owner to do this, but we were just at a moment where we felt it was right. And we showed them the percentage breakdowns. Um, and we have a lot of trust in our team. So we went that next step of showing them what we got paid. And that's not for everyone, but there's a level of vulnerability in there that you need to pick what's right for you. But what team, what team members need to understand is that most businesses fail. And if you're a health business, you'll be lucky to clear 10% profit. And 10% profit, if you're a million dollar clinic, means if you're lucky, the owner will have $100,000 left to pay themselves and to reinvest in the clinic. There are not many practices that are million dollar clinics. There are not many practices that even get to the stage to be close to that number. And then I think with that vulnerability and shared understanding, it does take down some of those barriers of like, man, he's probably making three, 400, 500 a year and I'm getting paid 60K as a new grad, I'll just go start my own business. I think we need to be better and more vulnerable. I share so much um, business information with my team because I think it's helpful in two reasons. It disarms them, but it also upskills them. I believe if they understand that stuff better, they're more likely to stay. But I also believe if they don't want to stay and start their own business, I'm, I'm helping them anyway. And I want to help them even if they do go and start their own business. So to me, that's a win-win. Um, I don't know if I've gone off a tangent. I'll leave it there and let you talk. No, 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 it's good. I think, you know, it, it does. It keeps coming back to this money conversation. And yeah. obviously with physio, it's a little bit different. But one of the things that is a bit resistant, I think, within chiro and osteo, mainly because of the model, because yeah. there's probably only 22% of osteopaths 
employing in Australia, and that I'm not about to go down what you should be doing or not, just delivering the figures. In yeah. Cairo, it's even less than that. It's less yeah. than five percent chiropractors if mm. employing. But the difficulty is, is that when you do employ, and a lot of physios do, you can provide things like KPIs and targets, and you can track and talk about your numbers. When you've got a contractor who's self-driven or a soldier that works in your property, you don't have these KPIs that you can track. And a lot of people have a lot of fear and resistance to KPIs. But as you know, when I talked about this at the summit, to me, KPIs are reflective tools mm. that actually reflect the type of practitioner you are and the relationships that you build. So if we don't know how many of our patients are coming back next week, or how many of we've rebooked and then have totally cancelled out and are never coming back again. How can we actually grow as practitioners? And I think this ties into money mm. because you've got, as a business owner, you kind of try and do everything for your team and particularly, I guess, on that contractor model where they're a little bit more autonomous and self-guided. If you're working hard and all this marketing and you spend money on marketing, investing all your time outside of hours to get all these new patients in, and then you've got practitioners that are only seeing them once or twice, mm. not building relationships, not even having a consideration for when they're coming back. It really does, whether you like it or not, it affects the business model and bitterness will ensue. Because after two years of this happening where you're busting your gut to try and get all these new patients in, and you watch them disappear before your eyes, not because of KPIs, not because of money, not because of profit, because these relationships are walking out the door, you might as well have a hole in a bucket and let them fall through. Mm. I mean, where, and that, that is where the, that exactly what you said, that transparency and that conversation of ultimately, if we don't have these patients stay, I actually can't afford to keep this clinic going mm. and I can't afford to keep you on anyway. Yeah. So how, what could we do better? I mean, we talked about what we could do better as business owners with transparency. What can then our team members do better? It's, it's tricky. I, I think I genuinely believe once the owners are a bit more vulnerable and transparent, the team, team members are accepting and understanding of it. Um, even the bad stuff, like our model's not perfect and we're just so open. We're like, this is the disadvantage of working at iMove. This part sucks, but this part's really good. And, but if you're transparent, with that they're also going to see that oh well yeah because i get it now and if i go work for the other business this part might be better but this part will probably suck and that that most people aren't angry or hold resentment it's more confusion confusion makes us angry and bitter it's, it's like, i don't understand i don't know why am i getting paid 40 percent? i don't get it that sucks so i think it, it has to come from the owners first as team members I, I don't know. I've just, I've seen a few posts lately where if you talk about KPIs or you talk about money, you're just automatically in this evil bucket. And like, you're not an evidence-based health professional. Um, what owner would track KPIs? Does your boss measure PVA like said in a really sarcastic way? And it just makes me think straight away, you're just writing up half the population and saying they're not evidence-based and they're not good people because they're tracking numbers. But I think it, I think that's where if we talk about numbers, it's a bad thing. We need to talk about patient care and how we can upskill you as an osteo, physio, communication, evidence-based, read more papers, understand physiology, because numbers will never resonate. I just, I guess if something in this conversation is triggering, triggering you as a young health professional, I think that's a good sign that there's probably some trust issue or some resentment. And maybe you need to go to your team member or reach out to Jade or reach out to me. Um, I, I just, I feeling there's an increased cynicism as well um, and a lack of patience uh, in, in younger health professionals. And I'm only saying that with love because that was me. I got to that same point at three years in my first private practice and I had some cynicism and a lack of patience. I felt like because I worked really hard for three years, I should something else. Um, and part of that was my fault for not waking the fuck up and realizing three years is literally the start of your journey, not even. And part of it was 
the business owners could have done a better job at explaining a pathway or why I'm there or just telling me that I'm at the base of the mountain. Like today is day one where you have the right, you've earned the right now to have the conversation about pathway, about pay. That takes three to five years. I see so many people getting to three to five years and feeling like they're there. They should be getting more. They should be getting 55%. They should be a leader. They should have profit share. I just think it takes longer than that. It just takes longer. Um, yeah. And I think lots of the common things that are feeding through with every question is the communication, mm. the transparency, not making assumptions. But, you know, my favourite word, it's, it's empathy on mm. both sides. Mm. You know, I think if team members were empathetic to, and, you know, I, I adore my team and I think they do this so well. They empathise with my situation. They are so grateful for what I do and the tough calls and the hard decisions. And I think equally, you know, it is hard as a business owner. You've got all your team. They all want to go on holidays in January. You can't have 15 people go on holidays in January. Yeah. They all, they all want Christmas off and you can't yeah. do that either. But I think sometimes just by offering that empathy, I can understand why you want to do that, but mm. this is why we probably need to compromise. And um, yeah. I think if you just show emotion and, as I say, you know, vulnerability, it's in fashion at the moment. Brene Brown, you know, she talks about it all the time. Mm. I think just showing that you're human, and that's what I want to come back to. I think that's what you do well in everything. You show your, all your cracks and all your, you know, scars, I think at the end of the day, people respect that better than if you're trying to hide all the figures. And, and it's true, exactly what you said. They don't know what it costs for tech support and to do a, a bass and bookkeeping and to have an accountant and to have graphic designers. And, I mean, all this stuff happens behind the scenes. So they go, oh, yep, you're getting $90 for a consultation. I'm getting $45. you are getting $45. you are getting $45. No, actually... Once you take out all the expenses, you're left with about $5 at the end. You're literally left with 10% of every consult. So I think maybe, you know, talking about these expenses and that sort of stuff. But I think there's also maybe a shortage of really great, you know, I guess, you know, we, we always had a shortage in osteo. I don't know what it's like with physio, but it is really hard to get a physio when you need one that's not mm. a new grad or somebody with experience. Is this why you kind of, you know, people feel like they can ask for more or bosses do give more because there's a shortage and you don't want to lose stuff? Yeah, I, I spoke about this a lot that I think it's, there was a feeling in one of my posts that business owners are in a position power but we're not um, team members are because there's an undersupply and you can leave and leaving is like the most painful thing. Like it, you put three to five years into someone and then they leave at the point where they're just flourishing as a team member and also flourishing for the business. That's, there's nothing more painful. Um, it's just hard. Like it's just really hard. There's no way, there's no other way to put it. Um, team members actually have the choice but someone told me i don't know if it's just a motivational TikTok. if you're if you're leaving for money it's never the answer like it's if you're if you're unhappy and you're asking for money that's not the actual reason and the the real reality is it there's only like a five to ten thousand dollar difference like in your first three years you can shop around sydney and the range is so narrow. Like it might be 60K, it might be 70K. And that five to 10K is going to make zero difference when you've got a family and you're 40 and you look back at those first three years. So you've got to get down to the real reason. Um, what's the real reason? And really interestingly about the two team members um, that we lost, the thing that preceded that is I want more money. And we, and we caved in. And it wasn't the answer. They just weren't happy, but we weren't on a level where we could actually figure out what that was. Yeah. So and I think it, it does come down to even, you know, there's a Harvard Business Review article that talks about the reasons that don't matter when mm. people stay. So there's yeah. lots of motivating factors that, that why people stay in an organisation. You've got culture, you've got job satisfaction, you've got peer recognition and all these sorts of things. But there's two top reasons why people don't stay 
that people give all the time. Interestingly, mm. one of them is management. So people don't stay because of managers. And one of the reasons that is, is because they kind of feel like they've hit the ceiling. Because if they've got an amazing manager and they want that job, that actually doesn't motivate them to stay because they think, well, I'm not going to get anywhere. So it kind of puts a lid on career mm. progression. And the second one, interestingly, is work-life balance. You can give somebody Saturdays off, you can finish them at five o'clock at night, you can think that that's what's going to hang on to them by you going back to working weekends and giving them Saturdays off. And yet somebody down the road will offer them a job that makes them work till nine o'clock every night and Saturdays and they'll leave. But often yeah. we tie those two things, money and work-life balance. We use that like a carrot that we dangle in the hope that we kind of get people to stay mm. when really what motivates people, you know, comes down to individual things. I mean, does that, is that surprising to you? Do you, I mean, I've, I've been at risk of that, giving, trying to give people work-life balance, but then I just realised that if you want your clinic to open from eight to eight, you can't just let everyone go home at five o'clock. We'd all love that. Yeah, I've been guilty of that. It's one of our pathways to have roster flexibility. And I think how you would answer that is, is it linked to their desire statement and their greater why? So the reason why they want that time off is more important. If they're just saying, I don't want to work Saturdays, I'd be wanting to dig a little bit deeper as, as to why. And when, as you were saying that, it came up for me that whenever we've we've changed a roster um it it makes you happy for about four weeks if you're unhappy like you're like oh this is cool go home early but then you realize it's something else and it's probably similar to money right it's like did that 5k pay rise after you got it for the first four weeks oh no shit it's actually something else i i'm bored there's no progression i don't understand where i'm going i don't have that greater purpose so it's probably coming back to desire statements yeah, and probably a good segue for me to share my screen with you for a second here because mm. I thought people might be interested. From Harvard Business Review and also some of the other research and stuff that I've done in a couple of courses and for the summit, there is, and I'm going to take that sixth one out because self-driven, That's uh, they're those people that are a bit outliers, but there's five things that motivate people yeah. to stay at work, to be happy at work and to stay engaged in their workplace. The first one is money. So you can obviously, you know, pay bonuses, financial injections, all that sort of stuff. But that's only one of the five. As we know from our experience, not everyone's incentivized by money. And yet often that's the carrot that we dangle. I'll give you a pay rise at the end of the year. Half mm. the time what they might want is number two, you know, recognition from peers. We've got one girl that was just an incredible team member. And no matter how many times I told her that she was amazing, she didn't believe me unless her friends at work and her colleagues at work also gave her a bit of a pat on the back. So we've got some things in place and, you know, we've got VIP of the month and we've got a recognition where we all get to say, I'm just about to start a new one that I'm calling COVID heroes. They don't know yet, but I'll be listing that tonight where we're going to support the COVID heroes, the people that really stepped up and wore the capes in Melbourne in lockdown for the last mm. stage four. And I'm going to give, you know, the prize doesn't matter, but it's the recognition where you get everybody talking and, as we know, what I talked about on the weekend, emotional contagion and positive contagion is catchy. So when you get all your team to talk about how much they love each other, it sounds sickeningly optimistic, but it does. It releases dopamine from your brain. It's, it's proven in science. Mm. And the third one, some people, you know, their peers can tell them how amazing they are, but unless the boss or unless the management actually sits down and gives them time and spends time telling them, that's the third one. The fourth one is professional development. So don't give somebody bonuses, monetary bonuses or a pay rise if they just want to do a professional development course in exercise science or in nutrition or postpartum pregnancy. Find out what it is that they love, which is... And number five is that job satisfaction and meaning, meaningful change, which is where I've got a spelling error there. Um, you know, having case conferences with them and showing that they're making a meaningful change in in their patients and that high value care. The one that's not in there is roles and responsibilities. Some people really, really rise to the occasion if you give them a job title. So if you call them Pilates manager or induction manager or patient experiences manager, 
people, you know, if you give somebody a uniform, they'll rise to the occasion. And if you give people a title, then sometimes that's all they need yeah. as well. So that's, that's a really important one too. So I think off the back of what we were talking about before, finding their why and also then knowing how to reward them for that. You know, some people don't necessarily need Saturdays off, but they might need an extra week to spend with their family. They might want five weeks holiday instead of four. Or, you know, just to know that they can go and take time off for a course because they've got a two-day course on a weekend that they love time off for. You give them that and they've got to spring in their step for the next three months. But I think it comes back to that not making assumptions. As business owners, what we can do better is not assume what our teams need to inspire them and empower them. So, you know, I think, and we do it, we do, we make so many mistakes over the way. And as you keep saying, I think we talk about the more things that we do wrong that we, than we actually do right. But I guess, and it's recognising the community. So it's the last question that I want to ask you is when your team are doing well, when they're inspired, when you've got a good culture, money is a wonderful byproduct of that. Because I truly believe if you're doing what you do and you do it well, you don't have to lock patients in to maintenance programs. Patients come back and you never have to worry about money another day again in your life. Mm -hmm. So it all does come back down. I mean, where's, where's your take on that community-driven value and, and patient value? Yeah, it's, it's very like new school and motivational and like Steve Jobs, Gary V, Kerwin Ray, um, optimistic give give value give up your time you know give things to people be there for them be a resource they're all our values and if you focus on that the money will come that's where i get a bit upset with the cynicism i think the second we talk about numbers or profit or business or pvas this cynicism seeps in and it might seem contradictory that you can't do both but you can just focus on giving value. Send an extra text message to a patient. Do a video for someone. Um, reach out to a gym. Provide a PDF for someone. The more value, the more you're there for someone, it's just going to come back tenfold. Something that came up, Jade, while you were talking, I think this is a big secret to our success and where people fall down, both team members and employers, is self-awareness and self-development. We have DK, my business partner, he spends all his time developing the humans, developing leadership, self-awareness and mindset from the first to the third year when you're with us. That's his sole focus um, because it's the self-awareness that will help us detach our identities from what we do. And that's where it gets really great. Third to fifth year, I'm a physio, I'm just a physio or I'm an osteo, I'm still just an osteo and you ask for money and you ask for time, but actually you don't know what's driving you. And no 20 year old should, they're hard questions. I'm 33 and I don't know what I want, like it's hard. You have to work on it, but you need someone to guide you. So here's my tip, 50-50 physio education and self-development, self-leadership education. And here's where it's hard. So many physios are so scientifically minded, they won't think that way in the first place. And two, how many business owners actually have the time to put in 50% of their development hours on mindset and leadership and knowing all of those things that you listed and do multiply that by 10 team members. That's hard. That's why being a business owner is so hard because you have, the reality is you have to be a superstar business owner to get to a point where you've either got enough money or time to get that information and be mindful of that information for 10 to 20 people. Um, so that's what came up for me there. Yeah. Oh, look, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I know our business gained the most, I think, stability mm. is the right word. When I started building a team of leaders mm. and I made them realise that even if you're supporting even just one person in a consultation room, that's one person that can follow you. And if you pride yourself on leadership and I guess some of that self-awareness that you were talking about, it's all emotional intelligence. It's my favorite thing. It's one of the five categories of emotional intelligence. We've got a duty of care to invest in that. And the evidence supports that we can build and nurture and grow that. And we're going to get far better outcomes. They did some research on surgeons 
and realize that surgeons that have greater emotional intelligence and higher self-awareness have 19% better outcomes when dealing with patients. And I'm sure even though that was surgeons, that's totally transferable across to healthcare. And then you tie empathy in with that, which is kind of, you know, what we do best. But it does, it comes down to impact and that's what leadership is. So I'd love a few take-homes from you on being able to deliver the most impact for that win-win-win. You know, bringing it back to that, I, I definitely agree with you. I think that we can get it. I've got it in my life. I have a wonderful balanced life that is so unbalanced that it's balanced. I mean, mm. that sounds crazy, but, you know, I have a, I have a choice. And I love that I get to now choose whether I want to go into work and whether I want to treat, but it does, you've got to create some impact first to be able to have that choice. So what are your takeaways on delivering impact, not only as an employee, but maybe as a business owner? Hmm. I think, I think definitely both parties, business owner and employee invest more time, money and energy in self-development and self-awareness. Um, mindset, leadership, NLP courses, working with you, Jade, um, that is going to bring you the most enlightenment and happiness where you'll get to a place where you know exactly what you want. Because it's easy to say, let's do a desire statement. But the reality is, if you're mid to late 20s, it's really hard. Like, you, you actually don't know what you want yet. But keep developing that side. Because I, I genuinely don't believe... I think you spoke to this and millennials, anyone born after 1980, which is me as well. We want greater change and social impact. Um, I, I don't think you can achieve that until you get to a certain place. So patience is the second thing. You will change the world. You can change the world. I started out that way. I still want to change the world. I want you to continue to want to change the world. But we have to like put ourselves in a position to like you have to get that first three to five years where you're a respected member of the community. You've got great word of mouth referrals. You're trusted. You can't do any of that in less than three to five years. And then we can talk about social impact and change. So I'm like, just, just have a little bit of patience, but what comes with that is the self-development and then the vulnerability stuff. I wrote down um, a lot of teams skyrocketed after COVID. And when I say skyrocketed, like the connection, because what did it do? We had owners standing in front of teams saying, guys, we've probably got about six weeks and we'll, the business will probably go under. Um, and what does that do? That's like true vulnerability. Like, holy shit, I didn't realize the position they were in. And how hard must that be to have this thing you've worked on your whole life to go under in six weeks? And I've had a lot of business owners say that since COVID, their teams have been tighter. Um, so more vulnerability, and that's the Brene Brown work, right? Um, the TED Talk by Brene Brown and Dare to Lead. There's some wonderful resources there. That probably be my two things. Yeah, I, I do agree with you that I think COVID's been really polarising for some businesses. I think it's really mm. shown people's mm. true colours come out, but those that have dug deep and nurtured their team. But one of the things I've seen is I've seen some star players really shine and some beautiful mm. acts of kindness in our workplace that are just contagious where people just say yes first and ask questions later because they know that this is a really tough time and we've just got to get through and then mm. we'll celebrate at the end. And I think often we spend so much time looking up and striving and, and climbing ladders and reaching for the stars that the most beautiful view is on the horizon. So sometimes just by dropping your gaze back down in the moment is probably one of the most beautiful views you're going to have. And I think in COVID, even amongst everything that's happening, we've got a beautiful gaze on our teams and on our future. And I, I just think, you know, there are so many amazing people that have dug deep and so many new graduates. I mean, imagine being a new grad mid-COVID, every single one of you grads that is watching right now that has stuck through this and back to students too. Students who've had your whole year of learning affected. I just, you know, I, my heart goes out to you, but you've done it and you're going to graduate. And often if you climb a mountain with a really, really heavy pack, the view at the top is going to be so much better than if you hand your backpack to somebody else and say, I'll see you at the top. I want to get there quicker. So I think mm. that's a lot of what we're seeing in COVID at the moment. And I think you'd probably agree 
with your team, who's standing right now beside you, uh, is really special. Really special. Yeah. I think that's a critique of millennials, right? Like that we've probably had it a little bit easy and we haven't faced some challenges of the previous generation. And I genuinely believe that message you just delivered, that's the positivity and, and that's the positive side of what's gonna happen here. Um, even I was guilty of that. We're always looking at the next thing. What's the next thing? What's the next patient number? What's the next amount of money we can donate? What's the next clinic? And it was really healthy for me. I've had an easy, easy life, like so easy when I think about my grandparents and something like this, I actually think is, is healthy. Like this will really help us in the long term. I know it's created mental health and some really tough times for me as well, but I'm, I'm optimistic that maybe this is something we needed because we, we were always looking off in the distance, like you just said. And I think it's going to take some of that. It's going to bring some of those new grads and young health professionals back into that mountain. It's like, that was really tough. And I'm going to enjoy it so much more when I'm, you know, seeing patients and I want to connecting with gyms and working with the community. Yeah. So I think that's a beautiful message that you just said. And I, I think that's the good side of COVID if there is one. Yeah. And so I, you know, I think we're sitting here and I think both of us are proof that you can achieve the win, win, win. I know mm. that I, you know, I can talk personally, I love, adore and most of what I do is for the team and for the, I am who I am because of the people around me. And I'm certainly when you talk about business owner and wearing the load, you wear the responsibility, but you share the wins with everyone. And I know that you're, I mean, you know, what, what message would you deliver to your team right now? Just thank you. I, I can't, I can't believe what they did. Um, I don't even know if I could say I would have done the same, but they're just an amazing bunch of humans. I, I, can't, I can't believe what they did. They, you know, a couple of them came to me and said, hey, Mick, I know we need to reduce our hours to get through COVID. I just want to let you know we're going to continue to work 40-hour weeks, but we're happy to take half pay. And I'm just like, stuff like that, like our business wouldn't, wouldn't be going today. And they didn't have to do that. They, they saved something important that I've been working on for seven years so yeah but we you know we get vulnerable we we've all cried in front of each other we have a few times this year and they just make us comfortable um so it's just thank you that's my message to the team and I love that you said that because that's what I wanted to tie this whole conversation together with mm. the win-win-win yes it's the money because if you want to do meaningful purposeful things you need money because you can mm. do more meaningful purposeful things as long as you've got cash to support it but the win mm. is that it's what you just said it's the thank you it's the gratitude it's that you get a team behind you that you love and adore so much and often there is so much judgment and so much tall poppy in these big cl clinics and these big businesses but any of them that i've ever met put their team first each and every single time. So I think mm. there is a win, creating great workplaces and great jobs for people to come to, great clinics for contractors to come and go from and leave the responsibility to someone else and business owners who can lean on their team in times of crisis. So, I mean, I, I'd wrap this up by saying we can achieve a win-win-win. 100%. It exists. And I would just encourage people to reach out to you, Jade, or, or myself, if they're feeling a bit down about that, because it's possible. And only, uh, I think only the clinics that see it that way are going to survive. And if we all see it that way, that's the rising tide analogy. We're all going to be better. We're all going to stay in our careers longer. We're all going to be happy and fulfilled. Yeah. And if, you know, if you're not feeling like you're in that space, both people can lift and rise to the occasion. Everyone can do better and be better in those instances. And so, look, if you love some of this stuff, if you love talking about money and developing and growth, for all of those people who've done my good to great in private practice, it's sold out this year, but hearing the same thing from somebody different with the same drive and motivation, Mick, Mick and their courses at, at iMoveU are just amazing in this space, particularly new grads. How can we find out more about your courses and your work, Mick? Thanks. We, we live and breathe a Facebook group. So that's the best place to go. iMoveU, all one word, Facebook group. 
our courses are pinned to the top, but there's also 72 podcasts and 12 months of Facebook lives, just my face talking about stuff. So get around that. Yeah. Awesome. So look, I encourage you to join that group, have a little bit more about their stuff. I mean, Mick is certainly one of the most generous people when it comes to his time and delivering advice because he genuinely cares. So if you have got questions, you know, as he said multiple times through this call, reach out, join the group, share, share your feedback, share your thoughts. We'd love to hear it. And thanks very much, Mick. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Thanks everyone for listening. Bye.